0: Amen. What a day. You guys are not excited? What do we have to do for you people? Nine baptisms and you don't get excited? Okay. Um, You ever, let me ask you a question. You ever um, have somebody mad at you? you have somebody mad at you right now who's sitting next to them and um, so you know we're human beings and we do and say things that you know last week we talked about easily offended. I thought that was a pretty good title because I think a lot of people are easily offended um, and maybe it's just because I'm easily offended. I don't know but the, the idea though is that We often have people that will get mad at us, and what do we do, you know, in those situations? There are, I think there are a lot of different responses that people have, okay? But I'm going to say there are two primary ways that people deal with when somebody's mad at them. Some people, uh, let's see a show of hands, some people run to the person that they think is mad at them because they cannot stand the idea that somebody has something against them, is mad at them, has misunderstanding or anything else. They run to them, one person. Okay, <laughs> they they want to make things right. They can't stand the idea that something's wrong, and they'll just rush into those situations. Now, how many of you are like that? Still just a... <laughs> okay, that's a very minor... Maybe, I'm, maybe there are a lot more categories than I thought there were. The other... Maybe this will speak to you. The other tendency is to run away from the person that you think is mad at you. Like, I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to smell them. I don't want to nothing. Like, they just, if, if I think or know somebody's mad at me, I'm going to avoid them at almost at all costs. How many people are kind of like that? So, let me give you a couple more. Let me give you a couple more. Let's we'll see where everybody's at. What if there are people that when you think somebody's mad at you, you respond by being mad at them? Like, how dare they be mad at me? I'm going to see their anger and raise it. Twice. Right? I, I, there's that. It's a defense mechanism. I... John, I know, <laughs> I don't always respond that way, but sometimes when, when you sense somebody's mad at you and you think, they're not mad at me for a good reason, I have a better reason to be mad at them, and then you, you up the ante and just keep going back and forth like that. Um, so there's a few that were saying, yeah, I kind of get mad when people are mad at me, right? Two, three, four. There are a lot of people left. I don't think you all fit into this category, but some of you do. Some people, when somebody's mad at you, you don't care. (laughs) Wow. I thought that was a small group. Because that's the group that I had labeled sociopath. It's okay. And you don't care? Labels. So here's the thing. You know, people are people. We have issues with people. They get mad at us. We get mad at them. We respond, you know, sometimes immaturity, sometimes without maturity. Um, But what if we take that same idea and we say, what if God had something against you? Now what do you do? Now, the only response, the only really good right response would be to run to him. The reason why we run away from other people a lot of the time um, that we think are mad at us is because we don't think that they'll understand. We don't think that they'll accept our apology. We don't think that they have a good reason. We don't think that whatever, you know, that it's a human relationship that even if you try to repair it, it could still be broken, right? But in, in reference to God, when you think that God has something against you, and you run to him. You know, you should know that he will forgive. He will restore. He will not turn you away. He will accept you. He will have grace and mercy and forgiveness and all the things that he promises that he made that possible through his son. And those things are promises to us that we accept by faith. And then we return those things back to him in our relationship. But... The reality is, even though that's the ideal, there are still a lot of people that perceive that God has something against them and they run away or they're mad at God or they don't care, right? We, we want everybody to have the response, I'm going to run to God if there's something wrong in my relationship but there's still a lot of room for people to have a lot of different responses. And so we're going to look at Revelation uh, chapter 3 as we kind of explore this a little bit more, what a relationship with God entails, um, how we make sure that it's healthy, thriving, and uh, constantly being renewed. Okay, So let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Revelation 3, we're picking it up in verse 14, the last... Letter to the last of the seven churches. And it says... To the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot or cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may, may not be seen, the salve to, put an, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove, and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your will, your love, your grace, your mercy, your presence, your power. Um, Lord, we we are weak creatures. We misunderstand so much. We have emotional knee-jerk reactions, Lord, to things that damage us and others and our relationship with you. And yet you're patient, you are kind, you are constantly willing to call us back, to invite us back, to allow us into your presence and and longing for that. And help us to long for it the, the way that you long for it, Lord. Help us to want it and to do anything, to be willing to hear you, to be willing to put aside anything that distracts us from it, anything that causes us to wander away from it. Lord, help us to return to you, keep close to you, and let you minister to us, Lord, in the way that you want. We give you praise, Lord. We thank you for your spirit moving in this place and pray that you would continue to teach us your will in Jesus' name, amen. So just a little bit, and we're not going to get into the whole thing of Revelation and end times and all that stuff, um, but just a little bit about the churches. Um, There are seven churches that are being uh, addressed in chapters two and three of Revelation, Okay, Many people know that. When I read any part of the churches of Revelation, I like to try to read the whole thing. Two chapters isn't too hard to to read, but I I like to get the whole picture because I think that the whole picture is uh, what God is trying to say to the churches for all time. Now, when you look at what's going on here, um, you have... John receiving a revelation from Jesus. This is what the book of Revelation is. Some of your Bibles will say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of you who maybe have a King James Bible might say uh, a revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Anybody have a Bible that says that? Uh, Some of you, um, I'm sure, have a King James Bible. Does it say that or not? I want to hear back. It does not say that. Okay. Um, So there are some Bibles that will kind of put that in parentheses around that. And Apocalypse just means revelation. We we think it means the end times because the book of Revelation is about the end times, but Apocalypse just means the revealing of what's going to happen. So the book of Revelation is basically broken up into three parts. What was, what is, and what will be. And so the, the letters to the churches is what is. And part of what that means is Paul or uh, Paul would write letters to churches, and it was about what was going on in their particular church at that particular time and addressing issues and false teaching or you know uh, practices that they needed to correct or whatever else and Then what would happen is that as that letter to that church was heard and, and, and interpreted and understood, we, we believed and understood that God had by his holy spirit addressed uh, all the churches for all time, through what was happening in that one church, it became what we understand as scripture. In Revelation, it's is the same thing. There are seven churches that were literally existing in in uh, Asia Minor, okay? What was common or now uh, modern day Turkey, and um, they're written to in order of how they would be circulated. The letter would be circulated to them uh, in a circuit, so it's kind of a circle. That you can see if you lay it out on a map From Ephesus to Laodicea It goes around this circle Because the intention was that As God was revealing what he was going to do for all time He's revealing to these churches Specifically about their issues And what we as a church In 2,000 years later Still need to understand As fundamental Absolute truth Of who God is What he wants What he wanted for them back then And what he still wants for us today Okay, that's, that's how you understand what Scripture is, right? So he is revealing to these churches some issues that are going on. And just as a, you know, a synopsis of the seven churches. Uh, many of you know this, so you've studied this, you love to dig into these issues. Um, but what's going on is that there are, I have a little cheat sheet here. If you want one, I can print one off for you. It just basically gives you the seven churches, um, what the the commendation or the rebuke is, and whether or not they have, you know, a, um, or both. So here's what happens. Out of the seven churches, two have only commendation, only uh, pat on the back, boy, good job, keep going, you're doing the right thing, don't stop. Now, those two churches, uh, when they are given commendation, now you have to understand that they are persecuted and they're poor, materially poor, and they are spiritually persecuted. So they're doing well spiritually in that setting. But in one particular case, he says, you're about to be killed. Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to remove the persecution. I'm not going to stop Satan from putting you into jail and martyring many of you. He doesn't say, you know, hey, if you just believe in Jesus, everything in your life is just going to work out perfectly and I'll come in and I'll just remove all the pain and suffering. He doesn't say that. He says, be faithful to me in the midst of whatever you're going through. Do you think that the church today probably needs to hear that a little bit? Because in our American mindset, we think, if if I have any problems, then maybe God doesn't exist, maybe he doesn't love me. And what you see in scripture is that there, there never was a promise that you wasn't you weren't gonna go through hard times. That in fact there is a guarantee that you will go through hard times. And Paul says that everyone who pursues godliness will be persecuted. So for us, we're like, oh this we don't want that to be the message we want the other message which says hey if you believe in Jesus he's going to work out all your issues all your problems all your struggles he's going to he's going to wash those all away and all you're going to have is good times plenty of money peace joy happiness and the world's just going to be a perfect place but what he says is the world is fallen You are an alien in the world, and and he means that this is not your home. Your home is heaven, and he's preparing a place for you, and your job is to continue to point to him throughout your life, no matter what you go through, and sometimes it... This is where we don't quite understand. Sometimes that means he's going to change a circumstance because it gives you a better testimony. Sometimes He's going to allow you to continue in that circumstance because that is your testimony. And our problem is trying to figure out why am I I going through this? Would you agree? It's not easy. But it's in those difficult seasons that He gets the most glory because you continue to trust in Him. And unfortunately many people have been told that God will take away all your problems or if you have problems maybe then you have a you have a problem with God that's not true now here's the other thing there are two churches um, that only get uh, rebuke and they have no commendation now we'll get to that in a minute but then there are three churches uh, that have both commendation and rebuke so here's what happens he says uh, uh, hey, you're doing good in these areas. Uh, I appreciate, you know, that uh, you, you work hard. Ephesus was the first one. He says, you know, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you, you can't bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles or not. So you, you're, you're doing good and trying to dig out false teaching and all that. That's great. Um, you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. That's great. and You're not getting tired. Good. But he says, I have this against you you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So here's here's what happens with with that one, is that you understand this is a common problem for many ministries that have an emphasis on helping people in some particular area of economics or social reform or something else, even education or, or whatever, is that... You get so busy in the work, the work becomes really the point, and then your devotion to Christ becomes less and less part of what the reason is that you're doing what you're doing. Uh, A lot of the colleges, many of you know this, a lot of the colleges in this country were founded by Christians to train pastors, right? And that was the point, to direct people to Christ. This is the first priority, to love Christ, proclaim His gospel. What happened was as they became, they continue to do education, Jesus became kind of a side note. We're people that teach people, and we love Jesus. Then it became, we teach people, and yeah, we have this this uh, Christian heritage, and it just becomes kind of that thing that's in the footnotes of what, why it is that they exist. A lot of our very liberal um, universities today that are anti-Christ in a lot of ways we founded by Christians for the purpose of training ministers. This is what happens when you lose your first priority, your first love. When well, Jesus isn't your priority anymore, then other things slip into that place. You, you understand how that could happen with a college or a university or even a nonprofit organization. You know, feeding people becomes more important than telling them about Jesus. And then finally it's like we just exist to have a food pantry instead of proclaim the gospel. You kind of see how that could happen. What's so unfortunate is that churches begin to have that same thing happen, is that they begin to care so much about people that they forget that caring about people means helping them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so what begins to happen is that there's a compromise with the culture because we don't want to offend anyone, and the gospel gets less and less, more and more watered down, or less and less proclaimed, and we're not going to really talk about sin. We're not going to offend anybody with, you know, their lifestyle or anything else. We're just going to try to comfort. And it seems loving. It, it does seem loving. But it is, I don't want to use the wrong word. It's not loving. It's not. Because you're not helping people with the essential need that they have, which is a right relationship with God. You can feed them. You can give them all the pats on the back that, that you want, but if you don't help them to have a right relationship with God, then you have not helped them. It doesn't mean that we don't do both. Help people financially, help people with food, help people with problems, you know, marital problems, uh, counseling issues, whatever that might be. But at the end of the day, the church has to keep the first love, which is proclaiming Jesus Christ. And everything else we do has to come after that. So that was part of one of them. Uh, another one says uh, to the church in Pergamum, I know you're, you dwell in where Satan's throne is. In fact, you hold fast my name and didn't deny the faith, even when the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So here's a church that's being persecuted, and he's saying you're holding fast even under persecution. But then he says, but I have a few things against you. So just because you're persecuted doesn't mean that you're off scot-free. There's still some things that you've got to deal with. And they were um, allowing for some false teaching. In the church in Theatira, he says, you know, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, patient endurance, uh, your latter works exceed your first. So, I mean, this is a church that's really doing pretty well. I mean, you'd think, man, this is a really on-fire church. But he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate false teaching again. And so one of the false teachings... Um, that they were criticized for was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You ever heard of that? This heresy of the, the Nicolaitans? It's like, what? what is this? W- what's going on with that particular false teaching? And I want to tell you about it because I think that it may be one of the most prevalent, heinous, undermining issues of the church in our day, okay? But because we don't know the terminology and we don't know what was going on, we don't get what the real issue is. So here's what the, the heresy of the Nicolaitans was, that they were teaching um, that there was a hierarchy in Christianity, okay? And what that means is that there were people that were apostles and Um, Those that were teachers and pastors and deacons and elders and uh, overseers and those kinds of things. And uh, they were the ones that you had to go through in order to have a relationship with God. And so therefore, if you didn't have somebody mediating between you and God, like one of these people who holds one of these offices, then you can't have the right kind of relationship with God that you need. Does that sound familiar. And here's what is so troubling about that is that in our day, we have almost completely forgotten or dismissed or or not understood how bad of a heresy that is. Because what happens is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose again, he became the high priest forever, right? at the right hand of the Father. So there's only one high priest. What the book of Hebrews says is that when there's a change of priesthood, because Jesus was not a a Levite, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, he was not from the the heritage of Aaron, he was from the tribe of Judah. But he became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which means that he's a a priest by virtue of or in, in reference to his indestructible life. So it's a change of priesthood, and whenever there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of the law, or vice versa. Well, the old law said you do have to have a priest. You have to have somebody who mediates between you and God, who's going to offer a sacrifice, and then they're going to say a prayer, and then when you bring this thing to the Lord, like through this priest, and they say this thing, and they tell you to do this thing, then you can have a right relationship with God until you sin next time, and then when you sin next time, you've got to come bring that That offering again, and then they'll do the whole thing over again. But when Jesus died and rose again, what happened was he says, I am priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, forever I'm the only mediator between God and man. And the sacrifice that was needed was once and for all on the cross so that no one has to bring a sacrifice ever again. You don't have to bring anything to God because he has paid the price in full. The, The law has been fulfilled in Christ. So The New Testament tells us over and over. He says that we are a kingdom of priests. Peter says that it's the priesthood of what? All the elite, all the ministers, we're all believers. He's saying that if you let somebody tell you that you need them in order to have a relationship with God, then it's the the blind leading the blind. It will always interfere with your gift and your responsibility. The gift is you have free access to the throne room of God at any moment. You can go to him in faith through the name of Jesus and say, Lord, I need you, and he will respond to you. That's a wonderful gift, would you agree? His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness is all available, accessible to every single person. Nobody has to go through another human being to get to that point where you can say, God, I need you. Through the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, I have access to the Father. You all have access to the Father. You don't need me to get you there. You don't need another pastor, another priest, or anybody who's got some other official title or some education or anything else. You have access. Now, I say that's a wonderful gift, but it's also a terrible responsibility. You have no excuse, right? You know what that means? What it means is that every single human being is going to go to the the, uh, the day of judgment by themselves. You can't point to, well, Pastor Luke didn't tell me that. He, he told me something else. And God's not going to say, oh, well, in that case... Well, you can come on in because you were led astray by this bad teacher. Nobody is going to stand before God and be able to point to somebody else and say, it's their fault. My parents didn't raise me to believe in Jesus. I didn't go to the right church. I went to the wrong church. I went to this place and they said this or my friend in the schoolyard Whatever, in the cafeteria, they told me this, and I believed it, and so I was led astray by this person. That person's really at fault. I'm not at fault. I'm just an innocent bystander. Guess what? There are no innocent bystanders. Everybody is responsible. It's terrifying, in a way. But he says this is what is necessary for you to understand, that you have to make sure that you are walking with the Lord according to the revelation of his word, the revelation of his Son, and the power of his Holy Spirit. So he, he does this. When the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus Christ is lifted up and you respond to that in faith, guess what he offers you as a gift and as a promise? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your teacher the one who reveals truth, the one who convicts you of sin, the one who guides you into a walk with the Lord. And you have to discern, if this person is not telling me the truth, I have to go back to his word. Now, here's where the problem begins to manifest itself. Are you guys following me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder if I'm like, am I just rambling? I mean, I'm not rambling, but here's what can happen we get offended by God because he, he begins to reveal there's something in our life that's not right. This is the, the key of the Laodicians, okay? Um, he says to them, you're self-sufficient. This is your problem. You think that you're rich, but you're blind, you're poor, you're wretched. Here's what's going on, I think. They have received Jesus Christ as Savior. I've... Acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God. He's the one who paid for my sin and uh, he's the one who's going to get me to heaven. Everybody love that? That's a pretty good idea. Pretty good deal, right? I get to go to heaven, believe in Jesus. He did the work. All I have to do is believe in him. We teach that. Saved by grace through faith, not by work so no one can boast, right? It's, it's all about what Jesus did for me. Now here's the problem. We think that if I just will receive that, now I'm going to ignore everything else that God said about how I'm supposed to live my life because I'm offended by that. I don't want God telling me that I can't do this or I should do that or how my, my feelings are are not relevant to what He wants me to do morally. So I'm not going to read this book. Let's have a show of hands. I'm just joking. <laughs> this is what we tend to do. I'm, I was really wrong about where people filter out (laughs) with how they respond to stuff. So this is just my assumption. But I think there are some people that they want the gift of salvation, but they do not want the lordship of Christ over their life. And if I just don't read the Bible, and if I just don't really agree with the pastor when he's talking about this stuff, then I can kind of ignore what God is trying to tell me about how I'm supposed to repent and change and live a life worthy and all those things. I can just live my life how i want i believe that's what the laodicians were doing what was happening was they were spiritually self sufficient they were spiritually prideful they had received salvation but they had ignored god's command to do anything else with how they're supposed to live their life this is why he talks about two things one is they were wealthy i mean the laodicians were were extremely wealthy there was a, a situation back in AD 60, okay? This is, just picture in mind, the Apostle Paul's in a Roman prison around this time, AD 60. Uh, Nero is the emperor at this time. There's a huge earthquake that devastates that area, okay? Asia Minor, um, that particular area. Colossae, completely destroyed. Uh, Laodicea, completely destroyed. Colossae was never rebuilt. It was, it was kind of a small town at that point. Uh, But Laodicea was so wealthy, they had so much industry, they had so much wealth pouring into this place that when the Roman government said, we will help you rebuild, because it was a Roman city, they said, we don't need your help. We got this. They built it with their own money because that's how wealthy they were. They did not want any help from the outside. We say, that's commendable. Good for you. You got your own money to build it. You should build it. That's fine. But spiritually speaking, the people had this idea that we don't want to be dependent on God. We'll receive salvation through Jesus Christ, but after that, we got this. It's it's all on us. Now, what Jesus says to them is, uh, your spiritual life is like your water. Now, the, the situation with their water was this, that over in Colossae, they had really nice, cold, refreshing water. Over in Hierapolis, they had really nice, refreshing hot springs. Over here in Laodicea, they didn't have a good water source. There was some local water that was muddy and undrinkable. Uh, and so what they had to do was they had to pipe it in from this other city about six miles away. Because they were so wealthy, they just built a pipeline. It was no big deal. They brought water in, but it was not only lukewarm, but it was filled with minerals, and it tasted disgusting. It says... You know how gross your water is? That's how I feel about your spiritual life. It's, it's it's unpalatable. It's nasty. Because you in your pride think that you don't need me. You're poor, you're blind. It was one of the things that they had going for them, they had this medical industry, they'd created this or, or made this bomb that you put on your eyes, and it was a healing bomb. He so says, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. Textiles was a big deal to them. They had all kinds of fabrics and all kinds of stuff going on. He says, you think that you're rich, but you're not. Come to me and buy real wealth. Now, how, if you're actually poor, how do you buy gold and medicine and clothes and all those things that he's saying? How can you do that? You guys know? Because the gift of God of eternal life and His presence and His power and his, all the good things that He has are free. But you have to come to Him for them. You can't buy them. You can't earn them. You can't do anything to make yourself worthy of them. All you have to do is say, I need it, please give it to me. Because they were self-sufficient, they didn't think that they needed to come to Christ for anything. I'll just accept salvation, and I'm just going to go on my way. Now, here's the deal. This is what I love about what Jesus is telling him. He says, behold, no, he says before that, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He says, I'm not giving up on you guys. I love you guys. I, I want you to be Right. Even though this is one of the churches that has no commendations, only repro- re- rebuke, he still says, I love you. I want you to be right with me. And so Jesus is what we call the good shepherd. Now, let me follow me here. As the good shepherd, he says, I will never give up on you. I will always forgive you. I will always receive you. I will always offer my grace and mercy. He, but he calls the people of, of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament sheep. How many of you love to be referred to as sheep? I'm not seeing one single hand. Let me me explain a couple things about sheep. Sheep are oftentimes thought of as stupid. Anybody ever? I think I've I've said that before. People who raise sheep kind of think they're kind of stupid. Now, the reason why, it's not really fair um, because sheep may actually have some intelligence... But here's what happens with sheep. They are uh, an animal that has no real defense. Like they, they, you know, domesticated sheep, can't really defend themselves. So what do they do? Like deer and rabbits and all the rest of them, they run away. That's what they do. And they sense danger. They just run. Now, God made them in such a way, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe as an illustration, but they don't have a good navigation system. So they don't know how to get back. So when they run away, they're lost. They're just like, I don't know where I'm at, and I don't know how to get to where I'm supposed to be, and they're just lost. Because part of their defense mechanism, too, is that they, they like to be in a herd. They like to be with their, their flock, you know. And so as soon as they're not with their flock, all they're looking for is, is their flock. And if they don't see their flock, they don't know how to get back to their flock. Your dog, likely, if it runs away, will find its way home. I don't know how it does that. God just built a little GPS in their little brain, and boom. That's, they, they know how to find their way. Sheep don't have that. So that's part of the, the issue. But the other issue is that they their eyes, you ever seen a, a sheep up close? They're really kind of weird looking, but they have eyes on the side of their head. They, they're, and their eyes are shaped in such a way they can see 300 degrees around them. You can't sneak up on a sheep, okay? Not very easily. So they can see. They have really good peripheral vision. They don't have to turn their head. They can just see everything going on around them. So what happens is what? They get spooked easily because they see everything all the time. And also, because their eyes are on the side of their head, where are they blind? Right in front, so they step into things all the time because they can't see right directly in front of them. So they get into holes and ditches and all kinds of stuff because they're, they're constantly, they have no way to walk straight. So they go all, all over the place. They say, why did God make these creatures? Right? Like what is the redeeming quality of a sheep? Do you guys know what a redeeming quality of a sheep is? one thing maybe maybe more but one thing in particular spiritually speaking they trust their shepherd absolutely they hear his voice and they respond to him and it, with absolute trust they will follow him when god says that you are my sheep and he says jesus is the chief shepherd he is the good shepherd what what he's saying is that there's this relationship between you in Jesus, which is if you will trust it, if you will depend on it, if you will invest in it, he will never lead you astray. You can absolutely listen to his voice. He wants what's best for you. He knows what's best for you. You have to respond to him in faith and walk with him in faith. As you do that, he will guard you. He will protect you. He will protect your soul. He will keep you on the straight and narrow path right? This is what he said. Now, here's what the illustration is, and he says, those um, who I love, I rebuke, um, if they will repent, here's what he says, I'll come in and I'll eat with him. He's going to knock at the door, but here's the deal. We oftentimes think about Jesus knocking at the door like, this is my house. You ever feel that way? It's my house. This heart is my heart. This life is my life. Jesus is trying to intrude on it. He's knocking on the door of my heart. And I'm going to either let him in or I'm going to tell him to scram. Now, what he's saying is that he's the rightful owner of the house. And if you're one of his sheep, as soon as he knocks, you recognize this is Jesus. And you're ready. And you open that door. And he says, as soon as you're opening the door... He's right there. He wants a relationship with you. He wants it to be right. He wants it to be close. He wants it to be fruitful. He wants it to be redeeming. And for there to be no thing in between you and him, ever. He says that's possible for you to have this tight and close of a relationship if you'll just constantly pay attention to him. Don't get offended that he says your life is a mess. How many of your lives are a mess? Okay. He's not mad about that. He just says, I want to step into that. I want to have a relationship with you and walk with you. I'm going to tell you how to do it, but you got to be responsive. He's the shepherd. You hear his voice. You respond to it. And he says, I'm right there. Amen. Father, we love you. Lord, we, we get it wrong a lot. You get it right every time. Lord, help us to agree with you. Help us to see from your perspective, to understand it from your viewpoint, Lord, to accept, Lord, what we don't even always understand. There's some things that um, we can only come to by faith, Lord, that the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, We're trying to figure out things on our own, in our own mindset, our own wise way, our own way of living. And we're lost. We're in the weeds somewhere. And you're calling. Lord, there's so many people, Lord, right now that I think you're just calling their name. You, You are beckoning for them to come close. Lord, I pray that they would respond right now to you. Just say, here I am. I don't, I don't know where I'm at, but I'm here following the, the call of your voice to a safe place. I give you praise, Lord. You can do it. You've gifted us with the ability to respond to it. I pray that we would in faith, for your glory, for our sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning, respond to the, the voice of Christ. He's calling you. I don't know who, where, what, or why. You do. Um, and if he's, you hear your name being called out, just say yes. I mean, that's, there really isn't much more to it than that. There's a lot to learn, but there isn't a lot to, to know before you just say yes to Jesus Christ. Amen. The altar is a place you can come and make that commitment in your heart. You don't have to come to the altar. You can do it where you're at, but we would love to celebrate with you about that. Our prayer team is available. They'd love to pray for you. If you come to the altar, they're going to pray for you. If you want to see them afterwards and just get alone with them for prayer, they would love to do that as well. Let's stand and sing.